It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right. Today, another rare treat. The goddess herself has peeked out from her magical warehouse of mystery, just <laughs> like the groundhog on Groundhog Day. Did you see your shadow? Did I see my shadow? Did you see your shadow? Because then we would have six more weeks of pandemic. No, I did not see my shadow. Ah, so that's good news. <laughs> I that's wanted to news. go away. Please go away. And with that, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a paragon of practicality in a pestilent world. Mm -hmm. I'm Joe Halton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, founder of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And you are... I am Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. We are actively licensed medical professionals, but be forewarned, we sometimes go outside the conventional medical wisdom. Sometimes not just outside, but not even in the same county, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. As the conventional medical wisdom. So before we start... You must listen to this. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to us. Gosh, we're just lonely voices in the wilderness. Plaintive echoes in the vast wasteland. Words of wisdom lost in the wind. Boy, <laughs> You're very poetic. It's enough to make you cry. <laughs> but you might consider listening to us anyhow. Hey, recently I came across an article about coronavirus myths. And, and guess what? That was on the AARP website. Sure enough, where all us old senile oh, yeah. folks get our that. news. I saw that little email come through. I didn't read it, though. There you go. Well, not really. We do get our news from a lot of places where young whippersnappers... A lot, lot of places. Young whippersnappers get your news. But some of these are worth mentioning. I wanted to talk about them. And some aren't really worth mentioning, like the myth that mosquitoes transmit coronavirus. I haven't heard one person suggest that. Have you? No. I know. <laughs> Whoever's talking about that is not in our circle. And the truth is, is that people... This is probably going to be, in the future, a, a fall, winter, early spring disease. And there are just not a lot of mosquitoes in most places during that time. You know what I think? I think the myth is that somebody was actually mentioning mosquitoes. Right. I think that's the, I think that's the myth. There you go. And, and <laughs> you're right. That was extra myth. That's like myth it's squared. It's a double myth, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> Now, another one is that you can catch COVID-19 from your dog or cat. Now, I know, yes, some animals seem to have contracted SARS-CoV-2 virus, like those tigers at a zoo somewhere and maybe three or four dogs or cats. Right. So, Scattered in, throughout the, the entire planet. world. Yes, right. right throughout the <laughs> planet. But these animals have their own coronaviruses they have to worry about. These are specific to their species in most cases. That is only affecting dogs, only affecting cats, only affecting tigers. 
So these are more concerning for your pets, but not at all for you. But the interesting thing is that in very rare cases, it's possible you could pass COVID-19 to your pet. That's what they think. That's exactly That's what, what I had read. In those rare circumstances. That these people had actually given it to their pets and it can't go the other way around. That's right. Very rare, but possible. Right. Because of this, public health officials say the owners should make sure their pets follow some of the same preventive measures the oh humans my practice. Goodness. My goodness. But. Okay, but maybe your dog or cat shouldn't be sniffing interesting animals or people, but to isolate yourself from your own pets or shipping them off to a friend or relative for the duration, well, that's just cruel to you, your pet, and your friends. Oh, <laughs> I think. That would be so sad when you're I not know. feeling well to not I, have your pet. Right, I know. Well, certainly your dog. Uh, I don't know if your cat will care much that <laughs> somebody hey, else is feeding him. But there's some snuggly kitties out there. There, there are. There really are. <laughs> well, so anyhow, so cat people, please don't send emails. We, we like both cats and dogs. And we also like the animals that, interestingly enough, are going to die by the millions due to the coronavirus epidemic. And that's pigs. 10 million pigs are going to be euthanized by mid-September because meat plants are closed in many places. Now, that doesn't mean they would have all lived to a ripe old age. They wouldn't have, but at least their deaths would have served a purpose. But just killing them and tossing carcasses in pits, boy, that's a waste. Probably worse than what happens normally. You know, I had this discussion with my dad. Apparently up in Georgia, there's some chicken farmers mm -hmm. that are going straight to consumers. No. So they're processing them, and people place orders online, and they have a um, a freezer truck, and people line up in their cars. They've got somebody standing in one position, and they take your the person's name and their order number, and then they communicate that to the person at the truck, and then when that car pulls up, they pop the trunk open. The guy comes over, puts the meat into the trunk, shuts the trunk, and then the person drives away. No, <clears throat> so they're processing chicken directly and giving it to the consumers. It seems to me that people would be perfectly happy to have some processed meat. Now, I know the problem is that the, the hog farmers themselves don't usually process the meat. They just toss the hogs right. away to, to the you know, they get yeah. driven away, and they go and do their thing. But, you know, there's a lot of... Um, people out of work and I bet you there are people who are chefs or have worked in kitchens who do know how to butcher meat because that's a skill some of them have learned so they they actually cut the right type of meat and the right way and they right, just have right. those skills but they might not be employed right now so my thought is maybe the pig farmers can hire some of the out of out of work butchers that had worked in restaurants and maybe rent some of these freezer trucks and get some processing going on in there and do online orders and just hog to family, you know, just cut the hog up and give it to the families yeah, for, to. at a reasonable price. It would offload the hogs that they're, they're afraid they've got to keep feeding it would provide some cheap meat to families that really need it right now because there's a lot of people without, without jobs, right. without money, who have families to And meatpacking plants aren't functioning in a lot of places, and so there's, you don't see as much meat available at the supermarket. So this would be another way to get that meat 
to the consumer. In a much smaller situation, we're talking about one or two freezer trucks, and just have processing go through the truck, and in, on the other side, it goes straight to the families. Yep. Bam. Oh, well. In one side, out the other. You I gotta... don't know if it would work, but I'm just trying to think of some way to get it into the hands of folks that really could use some meat right now. You got to think outside the box. You got to go. Bacon. You got to go hog wild. There you go. Hog wild. And it was just a thought. That's right. Hey, another myth: ingesting disinfectants. That's another sort of kooky one. There's no myth about that. Who does that? There's not one person on this earth that believed that that was going to work. Not I, one person. I, I agree. Uh, they just it was don't misconstrued. Right. Very few people are. No one said that anyway. Right. Exactly. I mean, some people say that this originated somewhere else, but honestly, it, no health professional would tell you that you're supposed to be ingesting Clorox if or that's a or myth going around your or something. If that's a myth going around your community, you need to leave that community. Yeah, that community is. <laughs> Definitely. Somebody's not right in the head. Way out there. Right out of the... That's outside the conventional wisdom. That's mm -hmm. for sure. Like we said earlier. That's silly. That's poison. I know. Come well, on. the World Health Organization warns that bleach and any other disinfectant should not under any circumstance even be sprayed on, let alone introduced into your body. You'll get skin and eye irritation and spray with sprays. Worse if you take them internally. I do know people that will spray some alcohol. I have done that myself, to be honest. And even uh, used a dilute bleach, solu bleach solution. I, I guess doing it for months and months would, and too much of it they're, would probably irritate your skin. They're talking about straight up. Oh, I think so. Bleach. Yes. You can't leave straight up bleach on your skin for I agree. more than a few seconds unless you want a serious reaction. It's it that's nasty stuff. Even straight up hydrogen peroxide on your skin is really really harsh. So. Don't do it. I'm with you. Now, one thing that is sort of a myth that we should talk about is you should avoid the hospital at all costs if you want to stay healthy. And some people do feel that way about hospitals and uh, staying healthy. And maybe they should stay away from hospitals if they're going to stay healthy. Mm. But I got to tell you that people are in and staff at emergency rooms very much open. Recent data, though. Fewer people are accessing these emergency rooms and urgent care centers and things like that. And that means that people that are sick may be ignoring serious health problems because they don't want to catch COVID-19. There was a poll from the American College of Family Physicians, or actually emergency physicians, that found that 80% of roughly 2,200 adults that were surveyed were worried that a trip to the emergency room puts them at high risk for getting COVID-19. Nearly one-third admitted to actively delaying or avoiding medical care during the pandemic out of concern for catching the illness. I had to send my daughter, remember? Yes. I had to send my oldest to the emergency room? Yes. For fire ants. Right. She did not want to go. Right, because but of those her concern for COVID-19, right? Exactly. Those hives were moving up her body within minutes. It was very, very rapid, and she was starting to have trouble breathing. Her tongue was swelling, and I was like, get in the car and go to the hospital. Thankfully, she had a friend with her to drive her, no, but she was scared. Friend. They didn't let the friend in. She had to go on by herself, which is horrible for her because she has, has a nervous 
and she's, young, she's not she's not a medical person. A young, healthy person going otherwise. Going to the emergency room. It's not like she's there every day. By yourself is a very scary thing when you don't have medical knowledge. You're like, what are they going to do to me? So she was in there by herself. Thankfully, the phone worked. Some of these emergency rooms, your phone doesn't work. Or the well, walls are so thick. Busy. Oh, oh, right, right. Your phone. Yeah, my phone. Wow. Okay, uh, that that is true. Uh, I want to say that yes, hospitals are where the worst cases of COVID nineteen are probably admitted, but you're not going into their rooms, and almost all ERs have segregated areas specifically separated out for people that they're suspecting COVID nineteen of, and those who are not suspected of having it are there for other reasons. So. That's very important. But one thing that is concerning is that people are maybe ignoring medical issues that need to be dealt with. The frequency of uh, cardiac catheterization Mm -hmm. and stents and and things for cardiac patients who have had heart attacks is down nearly 40% since the start of the epidemic, of the pandemic. And that's not people with a cold. That's people who have heart attacks. That means that some people are just not coming in despite having heart trouble. I would have to feel really, really, really sick to go to the ER, I have to tell you. I might have to have a bone sticking out. I think you're going to talk about broken bones later. A little later, yes, I am, (laughs) as a matter of fact. I would have to have that open fracture that you're going to mention (laughs) for us to go. I really believe that it would have to be some severe bleeding, really strong chest pain. (laughs) Not to be confused with, oh, maybe it's heartburn. Nope, got to be... Straight on, I'm having a heart attack, honey. Well, We've got to go. Well, don't go there for a splinter, but I'll tell you, COVID-19 is not stopping people from having heart attacks no. or strokes or other things like that. Don't let it stop you from going to the hospital if you're really having problems. That is something that I think is really important. Although I just said that I'm not going to go unless it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not true because obviously if I have something wrong, my husband will make me go to the emergency room, folks. I will. <laughs> And that is the case. Despite my (laughs) protest. Now, another myth that I have seen people say often is that they think that things are going to get better as things get warmer. Well, Mm -hmm. I mean, down here in South Florida, things are pretty warm, I would say. And and the counties that we're in have the highest, I guess because we have the most population, Mm -hmm. have the highest amount of cases of COVID-19 that are in the state. So... Yes, indeed, coronaviruses, most coronaviruses, like especially the ones that cause common colds, are mostly late fall, winter, early spring kinds of diseases. But there's nothing yet that proves that this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, mm-hmm. is going to actually be just a winter, spring, early spring kind of thing. This virus is just a freak. Yes. It just is a freak. It's some bizarre combination of a bunch of different things it's not acting like anything we've ever seen before it's causing vascular problems and gi problems and now they think it's affecting kids in sperm and now it, it gives foot rashes and all kinds of bizarro things. Oh, yeah. You, as a matter of fact, you pointed out uh, a recommendation that if you had COVID-19, you probably shouldn't have sex for 30 days. 30 days. Was that males or females or everybody? It, they said males. Males. Because oh. they had tested the semen. Right, right. So I don't know if they've swabbed women oh, yet. Isn't that interesting? To, to do a test. But that's... All right, they, well... But they also don't know if it's infectious. 
they found it, but they don't know if it's enough of a a viral load to actually be contagious. Be contagious and to cause an infection in the person there was. They also said kissing. Mm-hmm. To cut back on the kissing because they oh, found boy. it. So, I know. Wow. Well, Ugh. that's pretty crazy stuff. All these are all Oy. just a number of the myths that you'll hear out there. Well, this wasn't a myth, myth though. I, this this was actually well, that's not from a myth. A little, but the other ones we talked not about. an official giant study, but a a small group. I think it was four hundred thirty eight uh, men were tested. But again, they didn't further investigate. Could that have caused any of inf- the infections with their partners? Right. Because who knows? It could have just been them breathing, or maybe they coughed on their partner or sneezed on their partner. You're never going to actually know how if there's exactly two you got people it. who live together. Right. How did one person give it to the other? Was exactly. it when they touched the refrigerator door? Maybe they shared a sip of water from the same cup. Maybe they had a passionate kiss, or they had. Mm intercourse the night before or the guy sneezed and then the the woman walked into the room and happened to breathe enough of the viral particles to get her sick you're never going to know because there's no markers that say oh well she got it from the sneeze covid right and he got it from the cough covid exactly and that one got it from the kiss covid (laughs) there's no markers to tell you how you got it or where you got it or that's the the surface COVID. <laughs> so we're not, just never going to know exact transmission between two people. I think you're right. You know, ever since the pandemic has come around, it's been pretty much 24-7 COVID-19, pretty much on every medical channel that you could imagine and every broadcast channel, honestly, that you could imagine. But there are a lot of other things that you have to worry about in times of trouble. One of the most common issues is traumatic injury to the skeletal system. If you wind up doing a lot of work that you're not accustomed to, all, all sorts of other issues have to come up. You have to travel and people can wind up getting injured pretty badly. And of course, some of those injuries are orthopedic. Matter of fact, many of them will be. Orthopedic injuries involve bones, ligaments, tendons, and muscles and account for gosh, millions of emergency room visits every year in normal times. The ability to stabilize and transport trauma victims to modern medical facilities, well, that allows for treatment and repair by trained professionals. But for the average citizen, performing first aid, what we call pre-hospital care, is usually pretty much the extent of what your normal responsibilities would be. When injuries occur in disasters, that's different. Transport to a higher medical resource may not be possible. You need a family or a group member to step up and may have to render care, not just at the time of injury, but throughout the entire recovery process. Oftentimes, an injury will consist of a broken bone, that we call a fracture. If enough force is applied, injuries to soft tissues can damage the skeletal structure underneath. And that's so common that every year in the U.S., an average of 2.4 fractures occur Per 100 population. Wow, that's a lot. Then that amounts to about six and a half million people every year. There are various types of fractures, and they have names like spiral, green stick, hairline, transverse, comminuted. There's so many, but there are two general categories that I think are important for you to know: closed and open. A closed fracture is when the bone is broken but the skin is intact. An open or compound fracture involves a break in the skin at the point of injury, often but not always, with the bone protruding. 
The severity of a fracture depends on a number of factors, location, size, number of bone fragments, and damage to surrounding vessels, nerves, and soft tissue, which oftentimes run right along where bones are. So why is an open fracture more dangerous than a closed one? With an open fracture, the armor that protects you from contamination, your skin, is breached. Dirt, debris, and even bacteria that naturally occurs on the skin might enter bone marrow or even the bloodstream. That leads to life-threatening infections. If the infection is in the bone marrow, it's called osteomyelitis. And if it's in the bloodstream, you probably have heard of septicemia. That's what they call that. Now, routine first aid for broken bones, relatively simple and normal time standard first aid for a fracture goes as follows. Uh, you expose the injured extremity. If the victim can't remove clothing without the possibility of causing more damage to the injury, you got to cut the clothing away with an EMT shears or bandage scissors so you can take a really good look. you got to stop any bleeding that's associated with the trauma. Trauma that breaks bones is more than enough to damage the surrounding blood vessels, so you've got to check for that. And also, it can damage nerves, so you have to evaluate sensation and motor function for evidence of nerve damage beyond the level of the injury. When I say beyond the level of the injury, I mean further away from the torso. So or, or if it's a leg injury, closer to the foot, uh, arm injury, closer to the hand, things like that. Now, if you're seeing a bone protruding through the skin, that's going to freak you out. Uh, but all you need to do in normal times if the ambulance is on the way is to cover it with a sterile moist dressing if you possibly can. You want to immobilize the extremity to prevent further damage, especially if there's going to be a wait for the ambulance. This can be accomplished with a SAM splint, which is something that I think everybody should have that's interested in the survival medical storage. But you can also improvise with sticks, uh, a a pillow and some duct tape, but even rolled newspapers or magazines will work for the time being. I mean, but you want to provide the area with as much padding as possible and splint the area above, the joint above and below the injury itself, the broken bone itself. Uh, ice packs can be applied to reduce swelling and pain, and Advil or, uh, or Tylenol can be used, ibuprofen or acetaminophen, for dealing with pain. You want to cover the injured person with a blanket to prevent heat loss because a lot of these people are in shock. And so if that's the case, then you need to make sure they don't lose excessive heat. So if professional help's on the way, I mean, you shouldn't try to straighten a bone that's deformed by a break. We call that a displaced fracture. Or you shouldn't push the bone protruding through the skin back into the body because you might introduce infection or damaged blood vessels and nerves from your action. Remember, those broken ends of the bone might be pretty sharp. These procedures to straighten fractured bones are called reductions. A reduction is usually something that's done under general anesthesia in the hospital. It's very, very painful to do. And indeed, in normal times, modern medicine has given us plates and screws and pins and all sorts of stuff that we can do to stabilize a bone that's fractured, even sometimes a bone that's shattered. Now, having said that, you, survival medic, don't have the luxury of general anesthesia. So you've got to act some way if help is just not going to be on the way. In a survival setting, you're going to have to act to reduce the deformity yourself that's caused by the fracture. If the medic and the patient are lucky enough to have a fracture where bones are in alignment, that's great. All you need to do is stabilize with padding, splints, and, and preferably a cast. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Lack of mobilization to the extremity. In other words, if that extremity can move around as you're jostling somebody or transporting them back to base camp, that can cause bone ends to become displaced and worsen the person's chance for recovery. 
you want to do whatever you can to keep things in place. Cold packs or ice on the area for 20 minutes several times a day. That's a good thing to do for the first 48 hours. Now, if the broken ends of the bone are clearly out of alignment, a displaced fracture, as I mentioned before, you've got to do something about it. Otherwise, you're not going to get the return of the function of that limb. So the bone ends are just not going to knit together until you return that bone to a normal position. That reduction of the deformity caused by the displaced fracture has to be done pretty quickly because swelling, muscle tension is going to increase with time. You've got to look around and make sure that there is a pulse and there is sensation and movement beyond the level of the injury. If you don't see that, that's a reason to act quickly because that person may not be getting circulation because of pressure from a bone on a vessel. A, a simple evaluation of circulation is what we call the capillary refill time. And the capillary refill time, all you do is press on the nail bed or maybe even the finger pad. And what that does is normally causes the area to blanch, to whiten if you apply pressure to it. And then when you release pressure, it quickly returns to normal color. That should occur within two seconds. If it takes longer, it means that the circulation may have indeed been compromised. If this happens, you might be able to restore circulation and sensation to an injured limb by applying traction or stretching out the leg so you can get that bone straight. But unfortunately, although simple traction may be helpful and a little small splint or buddy taping would might work for a finger, if you have an arm or leg that's obviously deformed, that's going to involve more effort. We'll talk about that, but we should probably talk about how you would actually reduce a deformity, get that bone straight again in a situation where you're just plain old off the grid and you're not going to get any medical help. To accomplish this would be easier if you had an assistant. The assistant can stabilize the limb. They would do that above the fracture that is closest to the torso while you apply slow, gentle traction on the other side. And with luck, the bone may realign quickly. It may want to realign or indeed it could take some pretty painful minutes of steady but firm stretching to get things back into the normal shape. You gotta be careful to avoid pulling at an angle or in any way that does not achieve the original alignment. Now, once you're realigned, they may not stay that way because of muscle tension and swelling. That's something that you really have to deal with by using traction. We're gonna talk about that in a second. Let's say you're alone. What you can do is you could possibly find a fortuitous notch in a tree and put the person in a position where, let's say, the armpit or the hip is in the notch and pretty much held in place. Now that, you got to be pretty lucky to have a tree that's got it at just the right height and right, just the right angle to do that. But if you are lucky enough to do that, indeed, you can stabilize the patient's upper area better that way. And the loan medic can then pull gently until alignment is achieved. I know that this is not something that may be right there. If you're in the Mojave Desert, you're probably not going to be a lot of trees that have a notch just right. As a matter of fact, if you're in the Smoky Mountains National Park, you may not find that either. So it's something that maybe, maybe not. Now with traction, you're probably going to have to do something to keep that bone in its proper location, especially if you have to move people around. If the medic has accumulated medical supplies pre-disaster, there are a lot of commercial traction devices that are pretty good. Now, these are easy to implement, well worth the expense, but you can improvise a continuous traction splint with a couple of branches, padding, cloth, and ace wraps. Start with two branches that are at least two full inches in width, 
One's going to go from just inside of the upper thigh, in the inseam, so to speak, to about 8 to 10 inches beyond the level of the foot, beyond the level of the foot. And the other's going to need to be long enough to reach just below the armpit at the same level. So it's going to look like, hopefully if you can find a branch that has a natural notch to make a Y, that would make it ideal to help prevent further injuries. You would need one that does that for the inseam, and then you need to have one that does that for the lateral or the side of the leg. So you're going to secure these two sticks with cloth strips, ace wraps, other materials up and down the leg and torso. Well, especially just above and below the fracture area. That's going to be very important. You want to place padding where the branches contact the skin because that can cause pressure sores or can cause more irritation and make things even worse for this person who's probably in a lot of pain to begin with. Next, you're going to cut into the lower ends of the stick, both sticks actually, beyond the level of the foot to make a notch so that you can put a, about a two inch thick piece of wood and that's going to be fitted and then you lash it onto each side using, well, pretty much anything you have. You have ace wraps, things like that, securing it to that area. You want to wrap a cloth or other material around the ankle and around the ankle and then you're going to tie the ends to this lashed horizontal stick that's several inches below the level of the foot. With a separate two to three inch long stick, you're going to use this as a tourniquet windlass is used to stretch this cloth or other material that you have lashed to the horizontal stick and to the ankle. And what's going to happen is you're going to apply tension to help keep that broken leg stretched. So that's very, very important. You got to do that. And then, of course, you want to tie the windlass in place and, of course, frequently reevaluate the level of traction, circulation status, and, of course, the comfort level of the victim. So with any luck, discomfort should abate somewhat once the broken ends are realigned. Now, for open fractures, the skin wound and protruding bone should be flushed generally and generously with sterile water or saline solution and kept moist. Povidone iodine or betadine solution would be great as a disinfectant, but you're also probably going to need antibiotics. So clindamycin, cleosin, uh, fishsin, or the sulfa drug, fish sulfa, or sulfamethoxazole, trimethoprim, those are options to decrease the chances of bone infections like osteomyelitis. Of course, not as good as IV antibiotics, but better than nothing. And what you're going to have to do is just change dressings over the wound regularly. For most fractures, however, you're going to have to put a cast on, and that is preferable to a splint as an immobilizer for a number of reasons. Splints don't completely encircle the injured limb. Now, that's good because it leaves some room if swelling occurs and preserves blood flow and nerve function. Of course, a splint could be tightened or loosened easily as needed, but unfortunately they don't provide the same level of immobilization as a cast and excessive movement can delay or prevent bone healing. So the difference is, is that you haven't completely surrounded the injured extremity with a splint, but with a cast you do. Since a cast surrounds the site of injury and is less flexible, Excessive swelling can cause pain and even pressure sores, and even the, a bigger risk is of cast placement is compartment syndrome. Compartment syndrome occurs when pressure within the muscles increases dangerously. This pressure prevents nourishment and oxygen from reaching nerve and muscle cells and is something that you might see with someone 
who has had a cast placed. Casting material using plaster of Paris or fiberglass, very easy to obtain, lasts a long time, can certainly be a good addition to your medical storage. Plaster is more pliable, hardens slower, giving you more time to apply the cast. It might be useful for someone with not a lot of experience. Fiberglass is lighter though and breathes better, less messy to use, so it might be a good choice also. Matter of fact, it's probably used in most cases these days in normal times. Now to heal, an extremity has to be immobilized in a position that it normally would assume a normal function. For legs, that would be straight with a slight bend at the knee. For arms, it would be flexed at a 90 degree angle at the elbow to the upper arm. For ankles, it would be at a 90 degree angle to the leg. For wrists, it would be straight or maybe slightly extended, slightly. And for fingers, slightly flexed as if you were holding a glass of water. Of course, every bone that's broken is casted somewhat differently, so you might consider looking on YouTube, and you'll probably find a number of videos that show the placement of a cast. In general, these principles that I mentioned earlier, they are all the same. Now, when you place a cast, you're going to start first with a liner of cotton known as a stockinette. The stockinette should be measured and cut several inches longer than what the intended cast would be. You'd place it without wrinkling it over the area to be ca casted like you would put on a sock. Then you need rolls of padding to form a barrier between the skin and the cast. You want to advance maybe one half of the thickness of the roll each turn as you go around the injured extremity and you're going from below the fracture towards the tor torso. That would be a typical way to do that. The padding should be at least two or three layers thick, should extend an inch or two beyond the cast edge. Extra padding should be applied between the fingers, let's say, or over bony prominences like the bone you have that sticks out from your wrist a little bit. At this point, you're going to get your rolls of plaster of Paris or fiberglass and, and you immerse them in cool water for about 20 seconds or so, and then you squeeze out all the excess water. Keep the end of the roll, by the way, between your fingers or it's going to stick to the rest and it's going to be difficult to find. And then you begin to slowly wrap the casting material around the area of the fracture, smoothing it out as you go along. You want to advance one half, like you did with the padding, one half of the thickness of the roll each time as you go from turn to turn from below the fracture towards the torso and just avoid making it too tight. That's really, really important. You will want about three layers of casting material on the area, more in places where there's a bony prominence like the wrist we mentioned earlier. You want to roll the ends of the stockinette after that and the padding back over the cast before the last layer is applied to form a padding that will stay in place. Stockinettes, padding, casting rolls, these are all available in different widths and lengths appropriate to the particular fracture. Just make sure that you get enough so that you have some variety and can deal with different fractures as they occur in your role as medic. For comfort and cleanliness, Plastic wrap is pretty helpful to have as well because you want to be able to cover the cast during showers and things like that. You want to make sure that you do not get that cast too wet. A wet cast is a smelly cast, so that's bad. After recovery, which is going to take six to eight weeks or maybe more depending on the type and location of fracture, an oscillating saw is used. That's how they remove casts these days and, well, they require the availability of electricity. There are still some heavy-duty shears that you can get i see them online available for the purpose you're going to have to put a little elbow grease into that some effort is definitely needed to perform the removal now, i want to talk a little bit about how bones heal because i think that's important for the medic to know how things are going to get back to normal 
Man, I have to tell you, the practice of healing a fracture is almost miraculous. It begins almost immediately and continues for years, as a matter of fact. In the first few hours, though, a blood clot called the hematoma forms around the fracture. That's a good thing. The hematoma contains protein that helps pr provide a plug that attempts to fill the gap between the broken ends. The body's immune system then sends out cells, a number of different cells, but the first cells are called phagocytes. They act as a cleanup crew to try to eliminate tiny bone fragments, debris, and bacteria in the area. At the same time, your circulatory system begins to form new blood vessels to provide circulation to the healing fracture. Now, after a week or two, other cells known as chondroblasts form connective tissue known as collagen around the fracture. And this is identified as a soft callus, C-A-L-L-U-S is what that's called. The soft callus is stronger than a hematoma, but not nearly as strong as bone. Then cells that are called osteoblasts begin to create actual bone by adding materials and minerals to the fracture site. This is known as a hard callus, and that replaces the soft callus, and that process takes probably six weeks to eight weeks, 12 weeks in some cases, to complete depending on the type and location of the break. The end product appears like a thick bump on the bone. But over time, there are other bone cells, as a matter of fact, hard to keep track of these, called osteoclasts. They remodel the bone so that it ends up looking somewhat like the original structure, depending on how well you were able to reduce the deformity. Osteoclasts accomplish this by removing excess bone that formed during healing. This is something that takes years to occur, and we call that bone remodeling. And after several years, a properly set fracture sometimes looks so normal that even x-rays have trouble finding where the original break was. I just want to mention a little bit about how to tell a sprain from a fracture. A bruising, pain, and swelling, that could be a sign of a sprain or a fracture. So how can a post-disaster survival medic actually tell the difference when orthopedic surgeons might need x-rays, MRIs, and CT scans to get a feel for it? Well, you got to look for some signs. The fracture is commonly associated with really severe pain and an inability to use the bone. A victim of a sprain actually might be able to put some weight, very uncomfortably, but be able to actually put some weight on the area. You can be helped off the field with a sprained ankle, but you probably have to be carried off the field with a broken ankle. Fractures may appear more swollen and bruised than, than sprains do. I've seen them just like completely, almost completely purple, really swollen. So that can happen, although it's not absolute proof. One thing that is definitely a sign is this gritty or crunching sensation, something called crepitus, C-R-E-P-I-T-U-S, that you feel when you rub broken ends of a bone together. And you do that sometimes, let's say if I had broken my tibia, if I pressed on one end of the tibia, I would probably feel this gritty sensation as these broken ends of bones are actually pressed together. They sort of crackle and grind. Another thing that you might see, you might see a deep cut at the site of the injury. That could be a sign of an open fracture, but the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes the bone has gone right back under the skin and you can't see it. But if you do have somebody with a fracture who has a deep cut in the area, it's pretty likely that that cut was made by a broken bone. Maybe not, but don't be surprised. If you have a stethoscope and a tuning fork, a tuning fork is something that medical students often wind up starting with one of their original items of equipment. A tuning fork on the bone placed below, in other words, further away from the torso, below the level of the fracture, will result in decreased sound than when you place a stethoscope above the fracture. 
So in other words, if the bone ends aren't connected, what's happening is that you're not having that sound transmit through the bone because there's a break in the bone. There's a discontinuity in the bone. Also, motion of the bone in an area where there is no joint indicates that there is a fracture. You got an index finger with five knuckles. Well, guess what? Your index finger is broken. So that's just some of the things that I want to talk about with regards to fractures. There's a lot, a lot, lot more. There's a whole specialty in medicine associated with it. It takes years to learn, but this is some basic stuff that at least you'd have a beginning of a fund of knowledge of things that you might be able to do off the grid if you wound up with a family member or a group member with a fractured bone. That's all the time we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this week's survival medicine podcast. Please check out our website at doomandbloom.net. If you subscribe to the website, you'll get newsletters a couple of times a month, never more than a couple of times a month, sometimes just once a month, that have articles, all sorts of stuff, plus some special offers and discounts on medical supplies if you happen to be in the market. See you next time. This is Joe Alton, MD, for Amy Alton. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.